0: Okay, it's time to take out our Bibles together. If you will, take your copy of Scripture out with me and let us go to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32 today. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. We're going to go all the way through verse 52 this morning. Mark chapter 10, 32. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Remember Muhammad Ali used to shout, I am the greatest. We love the debates on who is the greatest of all time, the GOAT, right? Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Who's the greatest football player? We've got Michael Jordan, we've got Tom Brady, we've got Wayne Gretzky, we've got Michael Phelps. Four people that I would say are probably undisputably the greatest in their individual sports, but we love to talk about it and debate. Who's the greatest actor of all time? Who's the greatest m- musician of all time? Who, who's the greatest president? A lot of people like to have that discussion. We love to have the discussion, and we love to see it played out on the the field or on the the, the big screen or whatever. We are drawn to greatness. Now, of course, being the greatest has to do with a person's skill, their, their talent, and their accomplishments. But it's also more than that when we really think about it. It's more than that. It's their mindset. It's their will To be the best. It also usually has something to do with their charisma, their personality, their likability, even. But not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, greatness is defined in a much different way. You're going to see that as we read our text today. And so go with me to your copy of Scripture and follow along. I'm going to read verses 32 down to 52. It's a little bit longer of a section, so stay with me. It begins as follows. This is God's Word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now notice in our text that we just read, the very beginning of it, how it says twice that they were going up to Jerusalem. It says that at the very beginning, and then Jesus says it when he starts speaking in verse 33. They're going up to Jerusalem. This is seemingly a a small detail in the narrative, but it's actually really important. And it should be read as ominous when we read it. We should should think of this as an ominous detail because what it's showing us is Jesus is going to his death. Jesus is traveling with his disciples knowing that he's on the road to die. You see, Jesus was a man on a mission. His face was was resolutely set toward Jerusalem where he knew he would be killed. Never forget, brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. He came to die. He came to die for the sins of the world. Everything else in Jesus' life is toward that end. It says that those who were following him, they were both amazed and afraid. Amazed and afraid. Afraid of of the attention that Jesus had started getting. Because not all of it was good. They were probably afraid of his ominous pronouncements like the one here. But what Mark wants us to see is that while they are afraid, Jesus is not. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He is resolute in his decision to go. And Jesus, he would eventually be afraid. If you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, his fear comes out. But that had much more to do with being afraid of what God was going to do to him. Being afraid of God himself, God's own wrath that was about to come upon him. Not being afraid of of people, of men, and what they could do to him. And so I want you to see that. That's not where we're going to spend most of our time today. But there at the beginning, that's what Mark is telling us. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's on the road to his death. And he is unafraid, he's resolute, his face is set toward it. This is what he has come to do. But where I would like to focus most of our time is that middle section there in our text, this request of James and John. And I'm telling you, it is a misguided request. This is a misguided request. The, it's seemingly absurd what they ask. And so the question is, what is, what is going on here? What are they doing? Why in the world would James and John ask something like this of Jesus? It is almost embarrassing. Who do they think they are? Jesus, tell us that we can sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory, like in eternity. Who in the world do these guys think they are? Now, just earlier in chapter 9, we saw the apostles arguing with one another about who was the greatest. You remember this? It's just, just a chapter before. They're arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Now, here comes James and John going up to Jesus, probably trying to keep it a secret, saying, Hey, Jesus, will you do, the, do this for us? And, and notice how verse 41, in verse 41 it says, When the ten heard it, the other ten apostles, they were, they were incensed. They were indignant at James and John. How dare you guys do that? Because the apostles still have this thing going on in their group. They, they want to be the greatest. They want to be greater than one another among the 12. But still, why, why would James and John ask this? Why would they ask something like this? Now, I think perhaps what it is, is that James and John have started to discern a principle in Jesus' ministry. As I hope you are starting to discern as we go through the book of Mark. A principle in Jesus' ministry, and the principle is this. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. We've seen this principle already on display multiple times in the book of Mark. There are those who come forward to Jesus and they ask something of him boldly. They ask boldly. And when they ask boldly and they're so forward and they won't be stopped, essentially, they won't take note for an answer sometimes, they receive blessings that others don't. We've seen that in Mark. They received blessings that they would not have received if they were otherwise more, more reserved or, or more respectful of Jesus' time and things like that. We, we see this very principle, actually, with Bartimaeus at the end of our text. Blind Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. He, he cries out to Jesus when he hears that Jesus is walking in his vicinity. I can shout and Jesus will hear me. I don't know where he is, but, but I can shout and he'll hear me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 48 says, Many rebuked him, telling telling him to be silent. And instead of being silent, he just cries out all the more. He will not be silent. He will not stop. He, He desperately wants Jesus to pay attention to him. And so he keeps crying out. And in the end, he is rewarded for it. He's rewarded for his boldness. He's rewarded for his tenacity, his refusal to be silent. And so I think, James and John might have been acting on that same principle saying to one another let's ask big let's swing for the fences here but they were misguided they were misguided see they are not after the same type of blessing Bartimaeus was I think there's a a genuine connection between what Bartimaeus gets and what James and John ask. because look at verse 36 verse 36 Jesus says To James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And then look down at verse 51. Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? The same response to both. But you see, James and John are not after the same blessing, the same type of blessing that Bartimaeus was. James and John want greatness and glory for themselves. Now see how Jesus initially responds to James and John. Notice how he initially responds. First, he says in verse 38, you guys don't know what you're asking. You're in over your heads here. You, you really have no idea how big of a deal this is. So, so you're, you're, you're way out of your league. And then he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, and I would think it was absolutely foolish of James and John to respond with, we are. Yeah, sure, we, we, can, we can do that, yeah. I would think that was ridiculous. But Jesus actually comes back to them and says, Did you notice? He says, Indeed, the cup that I drink, verse 39, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized with. You see, church history tells us that all of the apostles were martyred for their faith. And so, in a sense, they did drink the cup that Jesus drank and were baptized with that same baptism. Jesus sometimes speaks of his death as a baptism that he has to undergo. Remember, baptism is is a, a symbol for us of the death that is occurring at that moment. So visually, you look at a person being baptized, they go under the water, they die to themselves and to sin. They are raised out of those waters, a new person, newness of life. And so sometimes Jesus speaks of his death as a baptism. James and John says, yeah, we're we're able. And Jesus says, essentially, like, I don't think you really know what you're saying yet, but you will. You will indeed go through this. They will, as Jesus did, die for what they believe in and for what they proclaim. But, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. To grant who is to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. And the implication is it's only God the Father's to grant. And so what I want to do now is spend some time on how Jesus redirects James and John and redefines for them what greatness truly is. Their request was misguided, so he redirects them. But notice how he did it. Notice how he redirected them. Jesus does not tell them, James and John, quit desiring to be great. That's not what he says. He does not say, you apostles, quit thinking about becoming great. Just get that out of your heads. That's not the way Jesus redirects them. That's what we would expect. You see, it's interesting when we read through the Bible. It does not tell us over and over again to quit thinking of ourselves. You would think the Bible says that. You would think, just on on your first instinct, Yeah, the Bible must tell us to quit thinking of ourselves. It actually doesn't. Over and over and over again in the Bible, Jesus will tell us things like store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Store it up for yourself. Do things to get a reward from God. We are told of the joys and pleasures of heaven and that we should long for them. We should work to attain them. We are told of the horrors of hell and that we should avoid them. A number of times in the Bible, God tells us how we can go find for ourselves happiness wisdom, and even wealth and success. We are told that in the Bible. Listen to this classic passage from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis writes, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, well I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is saying here is that it's not, it's not our desires to get good things for ourselves that are wrong. It's that we, we settle for lesser good things, lesser pleasures, the pleasures of the world, instead of the pleasures that God offers. And so apply this to James and John. It's not that it was a problem they were desiring to be great. That's not the problem. The problem is they were settling for worldly greatness, for the world's definition of greatness, instead of desiring true and lasting and greater greatness, greatness in God's eyes. Sometimes I liken it to, to being at a, a fancy restaurant. Let's say you are at a fancy restaurant, and the waiter comes up and says to you, tonight we, we have the, the chef's special. We have a world-renowned chef with us tonight fixing gourmet meals for any who would have them, and the other option is a cold Pop-Tart. And we look at the waiter and we say, I think I'll take the Pop-Tart tonight. Why in the world would you do that? No one in their right mind would do that. And yet, that is what we do when we settle for the pleasures of the world over the pleasures of God. Right? We're settling. We're, 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 we're lowering our standards too much And we're we're getting what is less when we could be having what is greater. And so Jesus takes greatness and redefines it for James and John, for the apostles, and for us. And in verses 42 through 45, that's where he does it. Let me read those again because those are really the, the crux of our passage today. Verse 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is greatness redefined. The greatest in God's kingdom are those who give their lives for others the greatest in God's kingdom are those who give their lives for others Jesus gave the most so he's the greatest right Jesus gave the most he gave everything and so he is the greatest do you want to be great do you want to be great if you do God says good we can use that we can work with that and so if you want to be great serve others If you want to be great, pour out your life for others. Sacrifice your life for others. Sacrifice your desires and your wants and put those of others ahead of your own. If you want to be great, do what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3. Consider others more significant than yourselves and then act accordingly. The ones who do that are the ones who are the greatest in this kingdom. Here and now, they will not receive their reward and their recognition because they are not working to be noticed. They're not doing what everyone praises because they're doing the things that no one else wants to do. And they are often doing them anonymously. This is true greatness. This is greatness in God's kingdom. You see, James and John wanted places of prominence. That's what they wanted. That was their definition of greatness. They wanted places of prominence. They wanted everyone to see how great they were. And they wanted to be above everyone else. That's their definition of greatness. And Jesus says, instead, instead, desire for God to think you are great, and then you will be truly great. Instead of desiring for everyone else to think you are great, desire for God to think you are great, and then you will be truly great. What does it mean for God to think? that you are great. What does that even mean? You see, here's here's the deal. We usually define greatness by comparison. We define greatness by comparison. I'm higher, smarter, or more accomplished than someone else, than other people. And therefore, I'm great in their eyes. That's usually how we define greatness. That's how the world defines greatness. But you see, it's impossible to be higher than God. It's impossible to be smarter than God. It's impossible to be more powerful or more accomplished than God. And so if you want to be great in God's eyes, well, then it's going to take something much different than what we typically think of as greatness. Right? It's going to take a redefinition of what greatness really is. It's going to be doing the things in secret that only God sees. Serving, not for the recognition and reward of others, but for the good of others and for the recognition and reward of God himself. There are three times in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus warns us against practicing our righteousness to be seen by other people. And he tells us, if you practice your righteousness to be seen by other people, they will see you and then you will have received the only reward you're going to get. You will have received your reward, but that will be all you get. But if, on the other hand, you practice your righteousness in secret, where only the Lord sees, you will have a reward from him waiting for you. And that reward will be much greater and much longer lasting than any reward you receive from the praise of men. This is not the world's greatness. It's a whole different idea. Jesus wants to do for you today what he did for James and John. He wants to reorient you. He wants to redefine terms. He wants to deprogram you. Did you know that's one of the main works of the Holy Spirit in your life? If you are a Christian today, if you have come to Christ, one of the main things the Holy Spirit is doing in your life is he's reprogramming you. Reprogramming you. Because... Brothers and sisters, we are all products of this world that we live in. Let's just admit that. Let's be honest. We are all products of this world that we live in. And we have all been taught to think in the world's ways and in the world's terms. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Holy Spirit is renewing our minds. He's renewing our minds. He's deprogramming and reprogramming us. When we come to Christ, He begins that work of renewing our minds. And He wants to do that for you here this morning when it comes to greatness. Greatness. Listen to what Jesus said about greatness in Matthew 11:11. 11, 11. He said, "Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist." Who's the greatest? Jesus says, "John the Baptist." But then he says, "Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is actually even greater than John the Baptist. Who's the least? Jesus is. In the the posture that he took, in the submission to death that he gave. You see, in the kingdom of God, it is the least who are the greatest. In the kingdom of God, it is the meek who inherit the earth. It is the weak through whom God displays his strength most powerfully. And so, those of you who have always been good at whatever you put your mind to, those of you who have always been assertive and smart and strong, you must accept your low position in the kingdom of God with joy and humility. It's an upside-down kingdom. If you've always been smart, you've always been strong, you've always been assertive, you've always been confident, welcome to the kingdom, you have a low position. And what, what a great and God-honoring thing that is when someone who is great and strong in worldly ways comes to the Lord in humility and repentance and accepts that in God's kingdom he's not at the top and sees simply being let in at all as a wonderful privilege. That's a God-honoring thing. Indeed, you will see this dynamic played out in churches all over the world. Churches who are really earth's embassies of God's kingdom that's what a church is an embassy in a foreign land if you will of God's kingdom in many churches you will find those who are of little account in the eyes of the world holding leadership positions while those who are great in the eyes of the world submit to those leaders and sit under their teaching and are served by them you'll find this in churches all over the place it's a beautiful thing It's a God-honoring thing. It's the upside-down way of God's kingdom. But the flip side is, is also true. Those of you who have always been outcast, those of you who have always been picked last for the team, who have consistently doubted yourself, seen yourself as kind of a loser in the eyes of the world, God wants to give you a place in this kingdom. Now don't misunderstand, this does not mean you should think that you will automatically be given a position of leadership in the church. There is a way to desire that, not because you want to serve, but because you want to be recognized. Because, like James and John, you want a place of prominence. That is not what we are about. But all who are of little account in the eyes of the world can rejoice that God wants them in his kingdom that God does not value what the world values. Look at the the very last verse of our our text last week, verse 31. Mark chapter 10, verse 31. Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. In God's kingdom, it's it's reversed, it's upside down. And so I want to conclude this morning with... Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-29. through 29. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's kingdom. There are many who will have trouble entering God's kingdom because they so cherish the ways of the world and the values of the world. This is why it is often easier for someone who is of little account in the world to enter God's kingdom than for someone who is accomplished in the world, for someone who is, who is strong, for someone who is successful in, in the world because in God's kingdom it's the exact opposite blessed are the poor in spirit Jesus says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are the meek they will inherit the earth blessed are those who mourn they will be comforted But brothers and sisters, also blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. This is a a wonderful kingdom. And what I hope you're starting to see, what, what becoming a Christian and being a Christian and walking this Christian life is, is starting to see that this is the way it's going to be for all eternity. The way that it is now in the world, that is so temporary. It's, it's like a smokescreen. It's not really the way things are. It's not really the way things will continue. This is the way things will be for all eternity. Will you jump in now? Will you jump on board now? Will you submit yourself and humbly enter into this kingdom now? For if you do, you will be a part of it for all eternity But if you hold on to this kingdom of the world out there, if you hold on to that now, you will lose everything for all eternity. That is what God is calling us to do. To see with spiritual eyes. Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see it? Can you see it? Do you see the way things will be for all eternity? Can you bring yourself to act now according to that unseen reality? Can you bring yourself to act now according to the way things will be for all eternity? And to sacrifice now that kingdom of this world? To live in such a way that the world will look at you and say you're a fool. But in your heart, to know that the true fool is the one who, who tries to gain the whole world yet will lose his soul. For all eternity. That is the choice. That is what the Holy Spirit is putting to us this morning. And that is what I leave us with. Right now we're going to spend some time in silent reflective prayer. We ask that you use this time. These few moments. To go to the Lord yourself. And to pour out your heart to him. In response to what you have just heard. God has spoken to us. Now we speak to him. And so respond to the word. We do this individually. We do this privately. And after we do so, we'll have a time where we will sing an invitation song and we will have an opportunity for those who need to respond to God's word in a public manner to do so. But before that, let's do so privately and individually. Let's pray.